Hello and welcome to Storytime with Bemsi, where we read stories together and talk about them. Or rather, where I read stories to you and tell you what I think about them. Today's story is Protista by Dambuzo Marechera. It is narrated in the first person by an unnamed narrator, and it is set in an unnamed location which seems very difficult to survive. Anyways, without any spoilers, here is Protista by Dambuzo Marechera. There was a great drought in our region. All the rivers dried up. All the wells dried up. There was not a drop of water anywhere. I lived alone in a hut next to the barren fig tree which had never been known to have any fruit on it. Now and then, it would show signs of being alive. But these always withered and were carried away by the relentless winds from the southeast which were dry and dusty and would sting into the very coolness of our minds. Those winds, they were fierce and scathing. Another drop of moisture was left. My hut was on a slight rise on the shoulder of the Lesapi Valley. The valley was red and clay and scarred with drought fissures from the burning sun and the long cold nights when I lay awake thinking of Maria the Huntress, who had one morning taken down her bows and arrows and had gone out into the rising sun and had never been seen again. But before she left, she had drawn a circle in red chalk on the wall by my bed and said, If the circle begins to bleed and run down the wall, that means I am in danger. But if it turns blue and breaks up into a cross, then that means that I am coming home. The drought began the very day she left me. There was not a green blade of grass left. There was not a green leaf of hope left. The drought had raised its great red hand and gathered them all with one hot breath and had swept all the leaves into a red dot to the pencil line of the horizon where Maria had last been seen taking aim with her bow and arrow at a running gazelle. And twelve long lean years had passed by somehow. I still had three more years to serve. I had been exiled to this raw region by a tribunal which had found me guilty of various political crimes. Maria had been my secretary and my wife, and had for long endured the barren fire of exile within me, and the sun burnt each year to cinders that darkened the aspect of the region. I began to forget things. My dreams still clung defiantly to the steel wire of old memories which I no longer had the power to arrange clearly in my mind. My imagination was constantly seared by the thought of water, of thirst of dying barren and waterless and in the grave to be nothing but dehydrated remains. It was not so much forgetting as being constantly preoccupied with the one image of water, and water in my mind was inextricably involved with my thoughts about Maria, about my own impotence, about the fig tree, and about the red soil of the Lesapi Valley. The years of my life that had gone were so much time wasted, so little done, so many defeats, so little accomplished. They were years I would have preferred to forget if they did not in themselves contain my youth and the only time Maria and I had been happy together. And now, disjointed, disconnected, they came back to me unexpectedly and with such new grain in them that I hardly recognized them for what they were. There was the story my father had told me when I was barely six years of age about the resilience of human roots. A youth rebelling against the things of his father had once fled from home and had travelled to the utmost of the earth, where he was so happy that he wrote on her wall the words, I have been here, and signed his new name after the words. The years rolled by with delight until he tired of them, and thought to return home and tell his father about them. But when he neared home, his father, who was looking out for him, met him and said, All this time you thought you were actually away from me. 
you have been right here in my palm. And the father opened his clenched hand and showed the son what was written in this hand. The words, and the very same signature of the son, were clearly written in the father's open palm. I have been here. The son was so stunned and angry that he there and there slew his father and hung him on a barren fig tree which stood in the garden. I dreamed of the story many times, and each time some detail of it would change into something else. At times my father would become Maria the Huntress, the son would be myself, and the fig tree would become the tree just outside my own hut. But sometimes the son would become Maria, and I would be the father whose clenched hand contained everything that Maria was. The scarred hand of exile was dry and death-like, and the lines of its palm were waterless riverbeds. The craters and fissures of dry channels scarred out of earth by the relentless drought. My own hands, with their scars and calluses and broken fingernails, sometimes seemed to belong not to me, but to this exacting punishment of exile. And yet, they had once tenderly held Maria to me, and she had been soft and warm and wild and demanding in these very same hands. These hands, that now were part of the drought, they had once cupped the quickening liquids of life, the hearty laughter of youth, the illusory security of sweet-smelling illusions. These hands that now were so broken, they had once tried to build and build and build a future out of the bricks of the past and of the present. These hands that had never touched the cheek of a child of my own, they were now utterly useless in the slow-burning furnace of drought, whose coming had coincided with Maria's going away from me. Her arms were long and thin, and the fingers were long and finely moulded, Though her nails, like mine, had long since lost their natural luster and had become broken and jagged, and she was gentle, fiercely so, for she knew her great strength. She was a head taller than I, and her long full legs sometimes outstrode me when we went out for a walk in the Lesapi Valley. I had named the valley Lesapi after my birthplace, where once I had learned to fish, to swim, and to lie back into the soft green grass and relax with my eyes closed and my head ringing with the crowing of the crows and the leisurely moo of the cows grazing on Mr. Robert's side of the river, where it was fenced and there was a notice about trespassers. And in the summer, the white people held rubber boat races on the river and sometimes I was allowed to watch them swirling along in the breezy hole of the river. But somebody drowned one day and my father told me not to go down to the river anymore because the drowned boy would have turned into a manfish and he would want to have company in the depths of the waters. Water was good, but only when it did not have a manfish in it. My first nightmare was about a white manfish which materialized in my room and licked its great man jaws at me and came towards my bed and said, Come, come, come with me. And it raised its hand and drew a circle on the wall behind my head and said, that circle will always bleed until you come to me. I looked at his hand and the fingers were webbed, with livid skin attaching each finger to another finger. And then he stretched out his index finger and touched my cheek with it. It was like being touched by a red-hot spike. And I cried out, but I could not hear my own voice. And they were trying to break down the door. And I cried out louder, and the wooden door splintered apart. And Father rushed in with a world war in his eyes. But the manfish had gone, and there was a black frog squatting where he had been. The next day, the medicine man came and examined me and shook his head and said that an enemy had done it. He named Barbara's father, and my father bought strong medicine which would make what had been done to me boomerang on Barbara's father. They then made little incisions on my face and on my chest and rubbed a black powder into them and said that should I ever come near water, I must say to myself, Help me, grandfather. My grandfather was dead, but they said that his spirit was always looking and watching over me. 
They made a fire and cast the black frog into it. And the merchant man said he would seed its ashes in Barbara's father's garden. But he could do nothing about the circle on the wall. Because although I could clearly see it, no one else could. Shortly after this, my eyes dimmed a little and I have had to wear spectacles since then. At the time, however, it only made the little circle jump sharply at me each time I entered my room. The spot where the manfish had touched me swelled with pus and mother had to boil water with lots of salt and then squeeze the pus out and bathe it with the salted water. After that it healed a little and ever since I have always had a little black mark there on my face. Soon afterwards, Barbara's father went mad and one day his body was fished out of the river by police divers who wore black fish shoots. There were various abrasions on his face and the body was utterly naked and something in the river seemed to have tried to eat him. There were curious tooth marks on his buttocks and his shoulders had been partially eaten. The hands looked as though something had chewed them and tried to gnaw them from the arms. Every morning, when the sun rose, there was a fine mist in the valley and the interplay of the sun's rays on it created fantastic images within the mist and they invariably looked like people I had once known. The shapes within the mist were somewhat formless and yet with such a realistic solidity to them that I could never quite decide what to think. I had named the valley to give it the myths and the faces of the moments in my own life. But as the years went by, the waterless valley, paralyzed by the cramping effects of an overwhelming oppression, emitted its own symbolic mists which overpowered my own imagination and at last so erupted with its own smoke and fire and faces and shapes that I could not tell which valley was the real Lisapi. I had been physically weakened by the great shortage of water and the shortage of food. Besides, I had never been very strong. And this eerie region, which was so stricken by the sun, seemed to have a prodigious population of insects, flies, mosquitoes, cicadas, spiders, and scorpions. The cicadas were good to eat. The rest tormented me with their sudden stinging. The massive difference between the temperature of the days and the temperature of the nights was also a severe torture. And the manner in which I had been brought up was not calculated to cramp and stifle the imagination. Rather, my imagination has always been quick to the point of frightening me. All this made the valley come out alive at my very doorstep. The circle which Maria had drawn on the wall seemed alive. It was in constant motion, changing color, breaking and rearranging itself into a cross, moving again into a circle and bleeding and running down the wall until I cried under my sleep. It seemed I was in many places at once and the same time. My sleeping and waking had no difference between them. There was a sharp but remote flame of pain inside my head. It seemed I was not so much talking to myself as talking to the things of that valley. I woke up one morning and at once felt in myself that something was wrong. I could not move. I could move neither my body nor my hands nor my feet. At first I thought something had in the night strapped me down to the ground but I could feel no bonds binding me. When I realized what had happened I almost cried out but held my breath because there was no one to hear me. Not only had my hair grown into the floor like roots, but also my fingers and my toes and the veins and the arteries of my body had all in my sleep grown into the earth floor. I had been turned into some sort of plant, I thought. And as soon as that thought seared into my head, I immediately could feel that my skin had turned into bark. It has happened at last, I said to myself. As I did so, I noticed that the circle on the wall began to bleed and was running down the wall. Something had happened to Maria. I could not feel my eyes, nor my ears, but strangely, I could see and I could hear. I do not know how long I lay there, nor what days or weeks passed as I lay there fighting back the feverish delirium that soon swamped me. 
and I was staring fixedly at Maria's life bleeding on the wall, and stared at it so much that I could see nothing else but that red circle bleeding slowly down the wall. It was like sleeping with one's eyes open. The footsteps outside had stopped at my door, and I could hear heavy breathing. The roof rattled a little as the southeast wind swept by, and then the breathing stopped. The wind stopped too, and the roof did not rattle any more. It suddenly dawned on me that the footsteps were actually inside me. They were my old heart beating. My old things come home. The door had not opened, but I could see her clearly. She was mere bones, a fleshless skeleton, and she was sitting on a tree trunk. I was the tree trunk. I do not know how long she sat there. She was weeping, clear tears, silvery and yet like glass, coming out of the stone of her eyeless sockets and her small gleaming head rested in the open bones of her palms, whose arms rested lightly on her knees. And she held between her front teeth a silver button which I recognized. I had years before bought her a coat which had buttons like that. It was the sight of her forlornly chewing button which filled me with such a great sadness that I did not realize that my roots had been painlessly severed and that what was left to do was to bind my wounds, but with a fresh eye walk the way of the valley. The roof was rattling when the southeast winds were singing a muffled song through the door, and those horrid footfalls retreated until the distant echo beat silently in my breast. After that, the sun never came up. I do not know where it had decided to go. Perhaps it fell into the sea where the great manfish lives. Anyway, the night did not come either. It had retreated to the bedrock of the deeper sea where the great manfish came from. There was in the sky so much of its face that even the stars had grown vicious and turned into menfish. And they all wanted company. They were all hungry for me, thirsty for me. But I kept a careful watch and always chewed the silver button because that alone can keep them away. Yesterday I met Barbara's father in the valley. I'll get you in the end, you rascal, he screamed. But I bit the silver button and turned myself into a crocodile and laughed my great sharp teeth at him. He instantly turned himself into mist, and I could only bite chunks of air. While I was cursing him, a voice I did not recognize said, You thought it was all politics, didn't you? But then, there was no one there. I snared. Isn't it? And I sullenly turned myself back into human shape. I had decided to write all this down because I do not know when the stinking menfish will get me. Maria, if ever you find this, my head is roaring with fever and I scarcely know what I have written. I think the menfish are out to undermine my reason. If you ever find this, I think Barbara's father is coming to get me and the sky and the earth and the air are all full of monsters like him. I wish I had been able to give you a child. My head. All grown-ups are menfish. But remember perhaps there is still a chance that the children. My head. I have been a manfish all my life. Maria. You did well to leave me. I must go. The End The main themes in the story are those of isolation and hardship. From the onset of the story, it is clear that the narrator is alone and he has no access to food and water. It is also clear that he is still in love with Maria, who was his wife, but he doesn't know whether she has been killed or not. The narrator keeps slipping in and out of consciousness. We see this as he remembers stories that his father told him and also in the fact that he believes that he has seen Barbara's father. There is a sense of helplessness in the story, some inability for the narrator to trust his own mind. 
his environmental senses. I think that this is kind of a commentary uh, to the helplessness and the desolation that one may feel uh, when isolated. We see that the narrator is cut off not only from physical nourishment but from emotional nourishment and he suffers dearly for it. The main people in his life that he was close to, his father and Maria, are no longer there and he struggles. And one gets the sense that he's struggling not only from the physical hardship but perhaps more importantly from the lack of emotional sustenance in his life. And I think that this is one of the big things that I took away from the story, the, the importance of nourishing oneself emotionally and staying close to those you love and care for. Uh, life is suffering, actually, without the presence of those people. Anyways, that's it for today's story. As usual, I encourage you to read these stories for yourself in your spare time. If you liked this episode or have any comments, please do not hesitate to get in touch. And until next time, I have been your host, Bemsey.